Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Richard Baxter, the English Puritan churchman and theologian, was perhaps one of the most prolific English language authors in the 17th century. His writings were wide-ranging, from doctrinal theology to devotional classics. And his practical theology was a model of German sociologist Max Weber's understanding of the Protestant work ethic. Baxter's worldly aestheticism was focused on service to others across sectarian divides. His book, How to Do Good to Many, The Public Good in the Christian's Life, offers practical guidance to lay people grounded in Christian faith. This classic, updated for modern readers by Jordan Baller, remains a thought-provoking and inspirational meditation on Paul's admonition to do good to all people. Today, Acton's Dan Huger talks with Jordan Baller, Senior Research Fellow and Director of Publishing at the Acton Institute, about Baxter's life and work and the new updated edition of How to Do Good to Many. You can check out resources for this episode in our show notes, posted at blog.acton.org. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend. Acton Line is available on Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today I am joined by Jordan Baller, Senior Research Fellow and Director of Publishing at the Acton Institute. He is also a postdoctoral researcher in theology and economics at the Free University Amsterdam as part of the What Good Markets Are Good For project. His most recent book is titled Beyond Dort and De Auxiliis, The Dynamics of Protestant and Catholic Soteriology in the 16th and 17th Centuries. And he is also general editor of the 12-volume Abraham Kuyper Collected Works in Public Theology. Today, we'll be discussing the English Puritan churchman and theologian Richard Baxter and his book, recently updated for modern readers, How to Do Good to Many, The Public Good is the Christian's Life. Jordan, welcome to Acton Line, and thank you for being with us. Yeah, Dan, thanks for having me. First off, Richard Baxter was was perhaps uh, the most prolific English language author of the 17th century, yet his work will be unfamiliar to much of our audience. Who was Richard Baxter, and how did he come to be such a force in the 17th century? Well, Baxter was uh, a non-conforming Reformed or Puritan pastor in England in the 17th century. His dates are 1615 to 1691. So that places him in his adulthood in the middle of the English Civil War. And he, uh, again, lived most of the 17th century. As you said, he, he's been called the most prolific writer in English in the 17th century. Um, so that's one of the reasons that he's, he's, uh, he's known is because of just the, the sheer quantity and, and volume of his writings. Um, he's also well known particularly for his practical work, his practical theology. So um, – there's an edition of his works in the 19th century that was reissued to the practical works of Richard Baxter. And so this is primarily how he's known uh, into, the, into the 20th century in our own times is as a, as a kind of a practical devotional uh, writer. Um, this doesn't quite capture the fullness of Baxter even though he is one of the premier uh, 
pietistic kind of writers from that Puritan era. He himself considered uh, his most important work to be his doctrinal work. Um, he wrote mostly in English, but his his premier work was a Latin work called the Methodus Theologiae, um, and that's what he considered his greatest achievement. Although it didn't ever really receive the popular acclaim that that uh, he wanted it to during his own lifetime, or even yet to today. So most people know know Baxter for his insights into practical ministry, um, his very urgent, uh, heartfelt, compelling wise insights into the Christian life and particularly in the context of Christian ministry. Excellent. Um, Now, you mentioned in your introduction uh, to this volume that Baxter was a major source for German sociologist and economic historian Max Weber in his formulation of the concept of the Protestant work ethic. What is the Protestant work ethic and in what ways is Baxter sort of emblematic of that spirit? Yeah, so so you know, this is another way in which uh, Baxter is received into the 20th century, into our own day, is as this kind of paradigmatic figure in Weber's thought for the Protestant ethic, which Weber himself uh, describes or defines most succinctly as worldly asceticism. So there's the worldly element where it's oriented to life in this world and the practical realities of that, but it's an asceticism as a kind of a a spiritual posture towards that world. So it's, there's a distance there. I would think of Baxter as more of a it's it's more of a, a holy worldliness or something like that with 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 Baxter. That'd be a, a bit more accurate. Um, although if you understand asceticism rightly, perhaps not as Weber described it, that that would be an accurate way of describing this kind of um, loose grip on the world in the sense that you're not tightly trying to hold on to everything in the world, but you're um, not entirely distant from it or withdrawing from the world and looking heavenly or heavenward only. So um, yeah, Weber took Baxter as this kind of, as we said, paradigmatic figure for embodiment of the Protestant ethic. Weber said this about Baxter. He said, Baxter stands out above many other writers on Puritan ethics, both because of his eminently practical and realistic attitude. We've already mentioned a little bit of that in his work. And at the same time, says Weber, because of the universal recognition accorded to his works, which have gone through many new editions and translations. So this is um, at the end of the 19th, early 20th century that Weber is saying this about Baxter. He describes one of Baxter's uh, larger works, The Christian Directory, this way. It's the most complete compendium of Puritan ethics and is continually adjusted to the practical experiences of of his own ministerial activity. So um, in the middle of his life, uh, uh, Baxter spent about two decades as a pastor in Kidderminster where there's a statue of him to this day. So um, certainly he had an effect within his own church context. Much of his wisdom and insights are drawn out of that very direct pastoral context. he was a very diligent pastor. He was concerned about uh, examining the spiritual state of of his uh, congregants. He would have them come and visit him and have appointments basically throughout the year so that he would visit with everybody during the year. Um, one of the things that got him in trouble was his, his penchant for having extra ecclesiastical meetings, conventicles, these sorts of things. He was very uh, – associations, pastoral associations and so on. He was He was very engaged in – living out ministry, not just within the context of the corporate worship itself, say, but uh, throughout every dimension of the Christian life. So working through a very rigorous understanding of what it is to be in the world, but not of the world. Right. Perfect. Um, 
Baxter is also something of an ecumenical figure, or at least mm, iconoclastic figure in his own time. Uh, the phrase mere Christianity, which appears in this book, uh, is familiar to many from the writings of C.S. Lewis. What is Baxter's own understanding of that? Yeah, so Baxter would distinguish, I think, as the the you know great bulk of the Christian tradition between um, essential teachings and non-essential teachings. Um, and so that's what that phrase mere Christianity is trying to get at is the shared commonalities that all Christians profess and believe. It could be, say, creedal orthodoxy, for example. Um, and that's one way that it's it's traditionally been understood. Um, but it also it – w- it wasn't just a kind of a formulaic affirmation for Baxter. It actually formed the way he approached his own ministry. So when he was in Kidderminster, um, he had a pastoral association for all the pastors in the area – irrespective of their confession, that would get together and just talk about the challenges they were facing, the local context, these sorts of things. So in many ways, that you can think of that as a kind of a precursor to what you see in many uh, settings now in the United States, for example, in urban settings where whether you're a Wesleyan or a Baptist or Presbyterian, you want to know what the church down the street is doing in terms of their outreach to the community, um, diaconal work, and these sorts of things, so you're not a, being redundant so that you can learn from one another, these sorts of things. So there, there's a kind of a very practical side to Baxter's ecumenism there as well. Yeah. Now, we talked a little bit about what it means to do practical theology, and we also talked a little bit about how Baxter understood uh, his doctrinal work to actually be sort of the, sort of the center of what he was doing. Now, this how to do good to many is an example of this practical theology. Um, how does that fit into Baxter's doctrinal concerns? Because that's, that's animating a lot of this work as well. Yeah, so I would say Baxter has a kind of a classical conception of the relationship between right belief and right practice. So um, ideally, your actions are going to be informed by your beliefs and formed by them. So it's important to have proper beliefs in a propositional sense at the very least, but also just to to know the truth. Um, But that's different than doing the right thing, even though those two things are intimately related and one ought to follow from the other. So for Baxter, all of his practical insights are grounded in the right beliefs that one ought to hold. Now, we've already seen that there's a distinction between – necessary truths or more fundamental um, doctrines and things that are more disputable or adiaphora and these sorts of things that Baxter's thought. So um, he is definitely working out of more of a classical paradigm. His emphasis is that uh, right belief must terminate in good works, that they have to have this kind of practical expression. Um, you know, he uses the, the kind of standard biblical imagery of someone who has the right beliefs but doesn't follow through with them being a kind of a withered branch. And uh, so then you have to you know wonder about how what, how that person is connected to the to the trunk you yeah. know to the to Christ Himself for example if they don't have these kinds of practical expressions. Um, part of that is contextual in the sense that um, he saw the licentiousness that was um, on display during the English Civil War, and that greatly concerned him. So his first work was a kind of attack on antinomianism. Um, and so even though he – you know, we've talked about his practical concerns, his very very ministerial, practical ministerial concerns, he was also a controversialist 
and a polemicist of sorts in the eight, in the 17th century. You don't write that much without disputing with people. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, he was involved in disputes over justification, um, disputes over uh, predestination, disputes over the role of the law in the Christian life. So his opponents would call him a neonomian who was, you know, more concerned with good works than with true belief. Um, and uh, so, you know, that, all of that's very interesting because he's he's kind of an eclectic figure. He's fascinating for that reason. Um, he was largely self-taught. So um, I think that his 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 erudition is underappreciated because he doesn't have the kind of formal credentials that many of his interlocutors at the time had. He comes into some of these disputes with a bit of a chip on his shoulder um, because they're, you know, he's engaged in people like John Owen and others who are luminaries of their day and have respected positions. And he's in a sense a kind of a country parson who's self-taught and doesn't have the respect yeah. that one might have otherwise. So what he brings to bear is a kind of um, a brilliance of mind, an attitude, a disposition of, of – there's a bit of pugnaciousness in Baxter. You know, he's, he's – um, he he won't let things go, um, and there's a dogged kind of determination in his in his uh, pursuit of the truth and right action. So he brings all of that to his his con- his controversial writings, and uh, you know one other aspect of that is that's underappreciated is he is extremely well read. Um, so there's a kind of, he's he's what I would call a, an eclectic scholastic in the sense that. Um, he knows scholastic distinctions very well. Um, part of this goes back to this, this ecumenism uh, dynamic that we talked about earlier. He knows not just, say, you know, the, the kind of reformed orthodox of the continent and, and uh, the British divines, but he knows Roman Catholics, Jesuits. He's well read in all of the scholastic um, literature of his time. And, it, employs this. So if he finds something that he likes in Suarez, he's happy to say, I found this in Suarez and it's really helpful. So for certain kinds of reformed people, that raises <laughs> warning signs. Um, but it, I, I think in a way it's it's more it, – it's a feature of this kind of international discussion that Baxter is seeking to be a part of that's going on, which is um, there's a shared framework for using categories and arguments, even if you disagree about the content of of the of the doctrine of justification, for example, you're working in in many cases with a shared terminology, or at least you're fighting about the terminology within a, f- a shared framework. Yeah. Now, now this this particular book um, is addressed partially partially to the people he's engaged in doctrinal controversy. But it's but it seems to be addressed to a, to a broader audience um, as well. Um, what to whom is this text addressed, and and who is it that he's that he's urging uh, that responsibility to do good to? Yeah. So the work we're looking at and that we that we reissued, and it's one of my favorite works, and it had been long been a a desire of mine to get this work a little bit more exposure. Um, dates from 1682, so that's when it's published. Uh, the title is, and I'm going to just look at the, the 17th century title page, it's How to Do Good to Many, or the subtitle, The Public Good is the Christian's Life, Directions and Motives to It, that is, Doing the Public Good, intended for an auditory of London citizens and published for them for want of leave to preach them. So there's a, uh, 
a clue there that Baxter had been ejected from the ministry or basically from 1660 onward had lived in various states of persecution or sanctioned by the civil authorities after the restoration. So um, he's got things he wants to share. It's basically a sermon that he would presumably preach, although there's obviously a difference between the printed word and actually delivering the sermon. And so there's a kind of an art in the 17th century of, of publishing sermons that you have to take into account. But um, it's cast in the genre of a printed sermon for want of a pulpit. He doesn't have a pulpit to, to preach, so the printing press gives him this kind of a – of a medium, a way of getting his message out. The text is Galatians 6.10, that is, do good to everyone. Uh, the text of that verse continues, especially those of the household of faith. So there's a, a, a priority of the church within the context of that verse. And right away, Baxter says, uh, you know, my point of departure is Galatians 6.10, how to do, uh, do good to many, this mandate that, that the Apostle Paul gives us to do good to many. Um, and I'm just going to stop there because to do the whole verse, I don't have space. <laughs> so he, it's an interesting rhetorical move in the sense that he really wants to talk about the universal obligations to do good to all. It's not that he doesn't think that there are ways of prioritizing that are properly prioritizing. Of course, he would affirm the second half of the verse. Um, but what his focus on in this treatise or this text is really on that universal call to do good. So his fundamental point of departure really is what you could call a shared anthropology irrespective of Christian confession. So in that sense, his, his, the scope of his message is universal. Mm -hmm. the, the direct um, audience comes on later pages. He, he, he says in his uh, epistle at the beginning, this is to uh, the Christian merchants of London and everybody else. Mm -hmm. So he's got a very interesting audience there in mind in the sense that he wants to address um, not primarily political leaders, not primarily churchmen uh, in the sense of being ordained, you know, the, the, the hierarchy of the Church of England or something like that. He's addressing Christian lay people who have some position of authority and influence and ability and means within the society, um, which is a fascinating um, rhetorical approach and it, it, uh, it displays – what I think is motivating him, which is this idea of you could call it a holistic Christian discipleship that has to permeate and influence um, all of a Christian's life, whether you're ordained or not. Um, and so, yeah, there's a kind of a – to put it in contemporary and acronistic terms, terms there's, there's some resonances with something like the business's mission movement in the United States among evangelicalism, which sees business and the business world as a legitimate – calling, but uh, one that has to be imbued with this sense of Christian discipleship. So um, that's his kind of um, explicitly uh, identified audience right there is the, is the, Christ, is the, are the Christian merchants, the, the people of means in the city of London. Yeah. So these are, these are, these are folks with resources. These are people with some influence, some reach, um, particularly economic. And one of the one of the questions then is what does Baxter mean by good? Um, is this is this merely the dispersion of these material means? Right. Is this yeah, or is this something is something larger? So the central dynamic for Baxter here that that uh, again permeates the entire treatment, and uh, let me just say this: he goes into very fine points of detail in terms of the kinds of prudential 
instructions he's giving. So, you know, it's not like he's, he's saying everybody who listens has to do A, X, Y, or Z. He's saying here are the kinds of things that you should be thinking about. Here are some very practical suggestions, again, respecting that he's not a Christian business leader. But mm-hmm. um, here are the kinds of things you might think about doing. These are, these are ways that you should consider for fulfilling your uh, obligation to do good to all. Um, he defines the good in very classical terms. Um, God is the highest and ultimate good. Um, being is its own form of good. Existence is its own form of good. And um, the good that he's concerned about is conformity to the will of God, which is another way of saying conformity to your created nature, the way that God created you to be, to fulfill the purposes with which God has um, brought you into existence. So you could think of it in a, in a very kind of – there's some continuity there with, with say, a Thomistic understanding of, of um, the highest good and our participation in, in created reality and these sorts of things and, and certainly uh, conformity to, to the natural good. So he'll say things like, um, you know, to do good to all is a universal responsibility for all, hum- for all people. Um, Christians in particular, because of the – uh, work of the Holy Spirit and regeneration and sanctification have been equipped to execute this good in ways that unregenerate people maybe haven't. Um, so that's why there's such a, a sharp point on that Christians are to be the kind of vanguard of doing good in the world. Not that there's lesser common goods that can be pursued by people who are not Christians, but because of his understanding of the relationship between nature and grace, that grace restores nature and, um, and allows us to start to fulfill some of those uh, natural ends for which we've been created. Christians are uniquely suited and certainly Christians of some material means and influence are uniquely suited to bring to bear all of the goods and gifts and treasures and talents that they have to doing good in the world. Yeah. And, and this many, he gives a lot of practical guidance in, you know, because often – Often there's a lot of anxiety with um, the prospect of doing good. There's 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 and an a notion of a good so comprehensive. Mm-hmm. Um, what what sort of guidance does Baxter give to people who who have that concern, who want to do good, but um, see a lot going wrong in the world that needs to be addressed? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, one of the, the the key insights that he provides, I think, is is a is a disposition, a concern to properly orient what you could call the penultimate and the ultimate, or the temporal and the eternal, or the material and the spiritual. So, in many ways, this is reminiscent, obviously, of themes in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, seeking first the kingdom of God and all of these other kind of worldly things will be added to you, Jesus says. Um, but you have to ha- have those priorities rightly ordered for that to f- function that way. Mm-hmm. And this is essentially what Baxter's trying to communicate to people. That is, pursuing somebody's ultimate good, um, yes, there's an irreducible, unmistakable grounding in eternity and the spiritual nature of the human person that has to be respected and has to frame everything. At the same time, we're not just spiritual beings. We're material creatures as well, or creatures that have a material exist, you know, aspect to our existence. And you have to do justice to that. So again, using a kind of uh, 
scholastic distinction, he, he, he says you have to think about the difference between the order of estimation, he calls it, and the order of execution. So the first thing you do in, t- in time may not be the most important in terms of its ultimate value, but that's just the way that things have to work because we are temporal material creatures. So um, he uses the, the example of the Lord's Prayer and he says, you know, we pray for our daily bread as you're going through the petitions of the Lord's Prayer before we pray for pardon and spiritual blessings. Not as if it were better, that is not as if daily bread or material goods are better than spiritual goods, but that nature is supposed before grace and that we cannot be Christians if we're not men. So there's a kind of a fundamental uh, orientation to the reality of how human beings exist in the world and adjusting your outreach, your relationship, your message to that reality. So this is, again, a kind of a practical um, aspect to, to Baxter's work is that he's concerned with finding people how they are, as they are, as they're operating and working through those means that are most appropriate to addressing people in their situation. And for human beings who have this material as well as spiritual existence, it, it means working sometimes through um, daily bread first rather than hitting them with the truth about the spiritual reconciliation that Jesus Christ offers. Um, so he gives very practical insights into how that might work out in the context of everyday ministry, everyday life, everyday Christian following discipleship of Jesus Christ um, and trying to maintain that proper relationship between ultimate goods and more penultimate or temporal goods. Yeah. And, and, and one, one of the things that he's concerned about is, is before you can do any of that, you have to have a motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, you know, at one point in this book, he says, you know, um, that the Christian should, should wake up wanting to do good. Right. And yet he also realizes that experientially in time, often our mornings are not like that. Yeah. Um, what is, how, does, how does he get at um, this question of motivation? Well, I think you're right. He, he's identifying the way things ought to be and then um, looking at the reality and seeing the dissonance between those two things and trying to address that in, in this work. And part of um, addressing that dissonance is recognizing it, naming it. Um, it's part of its uh, addressing it directly to people. So it, even, even telling his audience this, he's, he started to address the, the problem which is identify it and provide them with an instruction about it, which is um, as soon as everybody reads that, they realize, yes, on some primal level, this is how we ought to be and we're not that way. There's a kind of a Romans 1 and 2 dynamic here. We we all see that this is how it should be and we immediately recognize that we're not living this way. Um, But in that is a call to live this way at the same time. So even identifying that dissonance is, a, is in its own way a kind of exhortation that Baxter is giving. It's its own form of motivation, which is to, to, to do the best we can, empowered by the Holy Spirit as Christians, again, within the context of the Christian audience, to, to execute that. Um, he's really big on the public good and the common good in this piece, right? Um, and this is one of the interesting things about the common good is, uh, depending which common good you're talking about, if certainly if it's the highest created common good, you can't, in a way, get up and do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Like you could wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to go out and do the common good today. Okay, so that's an abstract concept in some sense. What actual things are you going to do? What actual good things are you going to do? And this gets again at back, at, back to Baxter's very practical insights and advice and uh, guidances that he provides, which is there are all these other little things that you have to do um, to promote the common good in a more general sense. Um, another dynamic that's at play in this treatise is the very Augustinian understanding of what we would call nowadays solidarity and subsidiarity. That is, there's this universal common bond that unites all of humanity as created in God's image. The way Augustine puts it, all are to be loved equally. Um, but we don't know everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, you have a, a finite circle of influence, circle of relationships. Maybe Facebook has made that circle wider than it would have been in other ages, right? Mm -hmm. Depending how many friends you've got on Facebook or followers on Twitter, maybe you've, you're connected in some uh, ephemeral sense to more people than you would have otherwise been. But still, it's limited. Uh, and Baxter picks up on this as well. And this is where subsidiarity comes into play, this, this notion of proximity and the vagaries of relationship that uh, define and give substance to this more uh, universal sense of solidarity, the shades of relational life and the, and the dynamics there. And so Baxter says you have to basically start with yourself and work outward because mm -hmm. that's the way God created us. He placed us in a certain position. He placed us within a certain context. He, he made sure that we were born providentially to a certain family in a certain time in a certain place. And so your promotion of the public good or the common good as a Christian is to live fully within that context that God has given you, all of the gifts he's given you, all the relationships, the unique relationships that he's given you, and work outward from there. Now, some people are going to have a broader calling in the sense that they're called to be leaders in a political sense, or uh, some merchants are going to have larger businesses than others. Some may be domestic, some may be uh, global nowadays. So there are differences there. Um, but there's a kind of a universal calling for all Christians to live out um, within their, the scope of their proximity uh, this call to do good to as many people as you can. Yeah. And that, that orientation is, is really key to the motivation too. Because when, when you alluded to Facebook earlier, I think, that, I, mean, I think this is one of the problems is there's a, there's a perception of participation in which you're not actually free to participate in the ways that you are in your neighborhood, in your community, with your spouse, with your children. Um, and, and, that is, and that is disorienting and lends itself to skipping by that work of discerning your own circumstances and vocation mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that Baxter sees is sort of central. Um, I'm reminded there's a, a great, uh, the great Bill Murray classic Groundhog Day in which he relives the day of Groundhog Day over and over and over again until, and he sort of descends into this hedonistic lifestyle for a while, but eventually he's only released from it when he figures out how to occupy every space of the day with doing good. Mm -hmm. With uh, and sometimes that good just takes place in a in a minute 
interaction of a kind word. Sometimes it takes the place of a musical performance. Other times it takes the place of, you know, saving someone from physical harm. And all of that is going to look very, very different in the life of the individual person. And I think, and I think Baxter is, is really powerful in that. What, what, is, what is a keen sort of uh, point of orientation that you've found in, in your own life with Baxter in, 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 trying to, in trying to do good to many? Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons this treatise has resonated with me so much over the years, and I first encountered it while I was in seminary probably 15 years ago or earlier or, you know, longer ago, um, it's, it's uh, the clear authenticity with which he writes. I mean, he's, he's clearly concerned about this. It's not just like uh, um, something that he feels like he, he has to say because he's preaching on every text or something like that. This is clearly something that motivates him. So he speaks with an authenticity that comes through the pages even hundreds of years later. Um, it's that combination of zeal and insight because there are really some, really a lot of wisdom in the in Baxter's words here so those two things have kind of made this treatise important for me to return to time and again when i'm thinking about the fundamental challenge of discipleship and you talked about a lot of the complexities that are different now say than when Baxter was writing hundreds of years ago in terms of particularities the world is much more complex um, but uh, that doesn't obviate the truth of many of these fundamental insights that he provides us. And as you mentioned, one of those really is this fundamental rooting of the Christian life within the divine will, that is, within the, uh, the context of God's will for us. So one passage in particular, um, and, and certainly for, for Reformed Christians, you know, this is a kind of a perhaps a stereotypical or caricature of the dilemma of Reformed Christians is, uh, you know, with such a strong view of God's providence and sovereignty, what place is there for me to do anything or you know, mm -hmm. what, what good is there for me to even do in the world? And Baxter says this, he says, it's God's great mercy to mankind that he will use us all in doing good to one another. And it's a great part of his wise government of the world that in societies men should be tied to it by the sense of every particular man's necessity. And it's a greatest honor to those that he makes his almoners or servants to convey his gifts to others. God bids you give nothing but what is his and no otherwise your own but as his stewards. It is his bounty and your steward service or stewardship which is to be exercised. So it's this very rich sense of uh, stewardship as definitive, um, as distinctive perhaps of the Christian life, as, of Christian discipleship that has really stuck with me. Yeah. Jordan, thank you so much for being with us today, and thank you so much for all your work in making this accessible to a modern audience. Uh, the wisdom here is really great, and that that operate that that turning a firm belief in God's care, in God's providence for us, into also a mantle of responsibility and stewardship is 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 something that's timeless. Well, I'm thankful to, to have had a part in, in hopefully communicating Baxter's wisdom uh, to a new generation.
As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our podcast team loves putting the show together for you every week. And it's so encouraging to hear back from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. You can reach our team at actonline at acton.org.